listening to Creative and Curious, a weekly podcast made for creative seekers who are compelled to let your inner artist reign free. Here we explore the mystery of how creating makes us better humans and artists. I'm Marika, and welcome to today's Discoveries. Welcome to episode 22 of Creative and Curious. I'm really excited to have you here. And I'm going to start off actually a little differently uh, with the announcement that last week I sent out to my email list and to on social media a little vote about my painting. And I had three different kind of categories of paintings that I wanted people to vote on and let me know what my next collection should be. So Basically, what should I be working on for the next three and a half months of my life in terms of painting? The winner was the structure of spirit or number one, which is this very light sort of airy idea of exploring what spirit means. Uh, The subtitle was we are spiritual beings having a human experience, which has always resonated with me and was um, put forth by a French philosopher whose first name is Pierre and his last name I'm sure I cannot pronounce, but... You will be hearing more about this for sure, because I will be reading more of him. It's an exciting thing. It's very challenging to think about what it means to actually paint the structure of spirit. But I can tell you just from reading a little bit, expanding on this quote, it's it's quite interesting. And I think it's going to go far. The second runner up was um, Hope's Companion. Birds, I was thinking of birds as being a hopeful, you know, sign flying into the future kind of thing. And a lot of people really like that one as well, as well as the colors. And, you know, the great thing about being an artist is you get to basically translate work any way you want to. It's kind of awesome. So I did have some people say that they really like number one, but like the, some of the things about number three, and I'll probably be incorporating elements of all of them in the next three and a half months of my painting. And I'm actually really excited about it. And I'm excited about telling the story of how the structure of spirit unfolds for me. So yay for the structure of spirit and on to the, uh, the thing that I want to talk about today, which is economy and in particular an alternative economy. And I need to, I feel like I need to give a little backstory to my history before I sort of dive in or, and and in part, because I think it informs what I'm going to talk about into the future of this. So something you should know about me is I used to teach at a college. I used to teach business and not only that, but I started up and managed the sustainable business uh, program at the college. I also attended, I got a master's level certificate from Bainbridge Graduate Institute in Sustainable Business. Uh, sustainable business is what a lot of people think of as a green business. Um, it's these, you know, eco-friendly companies, eco-friendly products are the easiest ways uh, for people to understand what sustainable business is. And while I was at the college, I went about halfway through my career teaching technology 
and then really sort of pivoted into sustainable business because I was really deeply, deeply concerned about our planet and about climate change and about the environment and sustainability. I felt like education was going to be the key to to mitigating the damage that we were doing to the planet that was really uh, bothering me. So, yeah, so I did that. I went to this school, I studied up and I started a program. I started teaching students how to uh, develop a triple bottom line business proposals. That gets me to what a triple bottom line is. So a triple bottom line uh, is not a bottom line based only on how much money you're going to make. A triple bottom line is uh, a way of measuring the success of any kind of endeavor, usually business, by its impact on finances. Yes, did you make money? Some people think money's evil. I don't think money's evil. I think what we do with money can be evil. I think the people behind the money are the ones who make the choices about what can happen uh, with money. So finances are there and we need money. I mean, we need money to pay rent. We need money to to buy food. We need money to pay our childcare. It's, it's a necessity. It's a way that we define value. So triple bottom line, of course, is are we making money? But the other value pieces are the social impact, the social justice piece is how we're making money good for people. Are we treating our employees well? Are we treating our customers, customers well? Are we, you know, practicing um, socially just um, hiring practices? Do we have benefits and for employees that are equitable hiring practices that are equitable, all these things are kind of go in the social justice bucket of the triple bottom line. And then the final one is, are we being good to the planet and, or are we damaging the planet? So are the practices, are we recycling waste? For example, are we reducing waste? Do we have zero waste? All these things that can impact the planet can be measured in a triple bottom, bottom line sort of scenario. And I am not an expert at all on the accounting behind this, but there are some good business cases behind having good social justice related uh, hiring practices and um, employer practices in terms of mitigating risk and terms of pro- productivity, all those kinds of things. So it's not necessarily you doing it necessarily for the, because it's the right thing, because it is the right thing to treat people well. Of course, we know that. But it actually is good for business to treat people well. It actually is. I mean, I know some people hate, you know, these big businesses and say they don't treat, you know, although don't treat people well. Well, you know, if you have that reputation, that's actually not good for your business. I, I, for example, don't go to Walmart much unless there are some communities where it really is the only place you can shop for certain things, which is its own problem. But it's not my first place. It's, and I know that they don't treat their employees very well. And I'm really not interested in feeding my money into an organization that hasn't really committed to the wellness of all their employees. So you have that, uh, same with the environmental. If you develop a reputation as a, as a company that does not, that damages the, the planet, an oil company, for example, your reputation can end up ruining your business chances. And I know a lot of people don't believe that. I believe in that over time. Tobacco, for example, is a really good example of a company, uh, industry that had a huge stronghold on 
uh, politics and on business and was making tons of money killing people I mean, with a, a drug that um, is one of the very few absolutely does cause cancer kinds of thing in almost everybody. And eventually their reputation was mitigated out of a system. It's not perfect. It's still around because people still smoke, but your reputation can um, get out of hand. And, and big businesses know this. They, they know this. this, they understand it's a risk and they're, and they're sort of mitigating it. Most smart businesses are sort of operating on some kind of a triple bottom line. The idea behind sustainable business is that it's more transparent. It's something that you're actually trying to measure. There are dashboards you can look at to see where your weak, your strengths and weaknesses are, those kinds of things. And it's powerful. And I do think that as we've moved forward into the future, um, that, that it is being used more and more. What I learned then is I then created a business program, a sustainable business program around this idea, around sort of this future thinking idea of what business will be in the future. And I taught some classes and I enjoyed it. It was great. What I learned from that though, is that if the system does not support the effort, if it will be an uphill battle the whole way and probably a lifelong battle the whole way to actually change the education system so that it would value a sustainable business program as much as it valued its business program that didn't teach these things. It was an incredible rock to push up a hill. And even though I had students who were interested, it was really, really difficult to get the bulk of students who could come in because it wasn't a required program. It wasn't something that the other business program wanted to integrate uh, easily. And what I ended up learning was that it was better to take these principles and just embed them in what already exists than to try to create something new. Um, Because that something new is something other and people, they, they don't, it's harder for them to integrate that unless there's a lot of other drivers besides a very enthusiastic faculty member like me, unless there's a lot more people behind it. And I, basically didn't have that. And what I really needed that in was the business division. And I needed it in long-term and more sustained support from the leadership. And I needed it across the the college system, essentially. I learned that the hard way. I learned, I jumped right in. I created the program. I loved doing it. And then I learned that in order for it to really, really maintain itself, there was going to be years of work behind it. And, and, and it was uh, frustrating. What I learned then from that is I always thought that sustainability and the environment were the first thing. Like I always thought that I had to, that I was really concerned about the planet. I mean, I love to camp. I love to climb. I love to be outside. And I, it really concerned me to see the damage that was occurring to our planet And I believed at one point that we needed to take care of a planet before we needed to do anything else. And because that's where we live. And if we don't take care of the planet, it won't take care of us. And I mean, there's a lot of truth to that for sure. But in order to create change and in order to actually have some kind of impact, I learned that it didn't start with the planet. It started with people. And in order for me to actually 
you know, inspire any kind of change in the system, in the college system and whatever kind of system it needed to start in changing culture, the culture itself, not just in relationships, which can be good with some people and not so good in others. It had to change in the terms of the actual values and the stories that we tell about each other. The story, the common story at the college was that everything was a battle. You had to fight administration. You had to fight with faculty. You had to, you had to fight to get anything done. There was a common story at the college that administration and faculty were always at odds. That faculty, that there was some stories being told about faculty who had tenure, who weren't teaching as well as they could because they had job security that they, you know, they just wanted to sit around and do nothing. And those kinds of stories are really damaging. What I learned from witnessing this is those were the stories that needed to change. Like you cannot have a good relationship with somebody when you have these negative stories about them. Like it's crazy. So a job opening opened up at the college um, for a professional development center director. And this center was going to be new. It, it, it had existed in different formats before, but this one was going to be new. And they were looking very specifically for a faculty member to run the professional development for the faculty because they recognized at least well, this was union run. The faculty union and administration decided it was okay and recognized that it would be smart for them to have a faculty member run professional development for faculty because it wasn't working for administration to tell faculty how to teach. So this opening, this job opening came up and I decided to apply for it. And it was a competitive job position. I had to, I had to apply. I had to do a, a presentation videotaped, very public. It was mortifying and, <laughs> and, and my vision and prevent and present my vision for what I thought the faculty commons could be. Now, I also knew this had a budget. There was a whole, there's a whole other system in place that was designed to make the faculty commons more successful than my sustainable business program, where I didn't have a budget, where they didn't have anything line item. They had no way to sort of integrate it. All those things had the union had really taken care of, which made it attractive because I understood how much more important those things were at that time. And the presentation that I gave centered around love. and. It's centered around changing the, the discussion about who faculty are. It's centered around the fact that teachers don't teach because they think they're going to be famous or because they think they're going to make a lot of money. Teachers teach because they love it. Teachers they teach because they love the subject, because they love the students, because they love the act of teaching. That is really why teachers teach. And again, there's all these other crazy stories out there about why teachers are out there teaching, but I can guarantee that teachers do not go into the profession of teaching, especially at community colleges, which is where I taught, especially at K through 12, thinking that they are going to make lots of money or even be respected that much by, um, by the government that pays them too. So I was really going after changing the dialogue around 
you know, victimizing uh, teachers and, and, and really sort of reframing it in, into what I still believe obviously is true, which is that teachers teach for love, love of the content, love of the students, love of teacher, maybe all three of those things, or maybe one of them, or maybe a couple of them, but the the root of it is the love. I got the job and I, <laughs> and then proceeded down uh, to create this development center is highly political position. And there was a lot of interesting dramas as I move forward, which I think you need to expect when you are advocating for change. There is no way that change at a system-wide, community-wide, nationwide effort is going to not be painful. There were definitely a lot, there was a lot of conflict in those couple years that I was doing this. And if that was the thing that I thought I was on the planet to do for the rest of my life, I would still be there doing those things. And instead, instead I knew that wasn't true. And instead what I did is developed a vision, a mission, and basically a structure for how this program could live how how the development center could live and also live on those values and from what i hear it's it's kind of it I, that's what i did i mean there're different directors there've been a few directors since i've left um but that's what i did there was just this creative me there's just this part of me that i knew that was not what i wanted to do with the rest of my life and that if i didn't move on it was going to be a disaster for me and you know big picture i don't really know I don't really know how that's all going to fall out. I can tell you in the last six years, I'm definitely a better, happier person since leaving that college. But I, it did lay this foundation. It did lay this idea in my head about developing a culture, a counterculture to any system, any system at all. I'm really interested in this journey that I've had with my own creativity, especially since then. Because, because of not just the fact that I am pursuing my creative life, I am also pursuing a more spiritual life. And I'm not religious, ever. I've never been religious. Never in my life have I, my parents never had me go to any kind of church or anything like that. But there is this sort of interesting thing that happens when you begin to pursue the crazy and the creative, which is you start moving down this, what it means to be alive, what it means to be here on this planet mindset. And that takes me into a spiritual journey along with this creative stuff that I'm working on. And the interesting pieces of this move into you know, this culture of love that I talk about versus fear that I think it, I was battling against a lot of fear. And then I see that nationwide too, that we have a lot of fear, especially during this pandemic. The fear dial has sort of been turned way, way up, whether it's a fear of dying from this virus to a fear of spreading it around to a fear of the economic fallout to a fear of wearing masks, like it's just, everything seems so fear-based. 
And this discussion of love has really fallen away because we are not conditioned. We, we do not have a system in place that allows easy discussion of love. The fact that there is a lot of love in this pandemic too. We are human beings. There is a lot of love. Love, that love is a big piece of this. The, the other piece of it is we also have a culture based on the past, especially a president who I think is based entirely on the past in the sense that he stands for conservative values. He stands for white supremacy. He stands for these conditions, these ideals of a really old America, not the one, and he's not standing for a vision of the future so much as it, the future should be like the past. And I don't even want to talk about the future. I don't want a culture of the future. Actually, I want to, I want a culture of the present because that is where love is actually the strongest is right here in the present, in this moment. So I want to take this idea of a triple bottom line and move it even further into what I'm starting to think of as an economy of hope. You know, everybody has this idea of economy. So let me just kind of step back and say that and the economy, like if you look it up in the dictionary, is the wealth and resources of a, of a country's production, right? It's basically how much stuff you have, something like this. And, but I have come to think of money because really it's not just stuff, it's money, right? Is value. It's, and connected to your values that where we put our money is in fact what we value. And you can collect it for sure because you value safety or you value saving so that you can buy something. But that what money really and truly is, is a symbol of value. So when you go to the grocery store and you buy your food, you are saying that you value food. You are also saying if you are willing to buy organic, sustainable produce, for example, that you are saying with your money that you value that over cheap food and maybe that you value your health as well. That's what money is to me. It's how we value stuff and not just stuff, how we value life. Actually, it's how we value life. And so when I'm talking about economy, I'm talking about how value flows in society. How does value flow? When it's flowing into huge corporations that are not following triple bottom line practices and are not that interested in the greater good. And you're contributing to that in some way. Then you're saying that money, this financial piece of money is more important than whatever social impact that has, that company has overall. And I think that's bullshit. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. If we all had this idea, this, this education, this understanding of value and that we are important in what we value, 
uh, I think it would change. I think there would be a lot of change. And so here I am, I'm going right back to how do we change society? <laughs> and, and, and I am starting to think about an economy of hope, which is not grounded in necessarily triple bottom line, though it is, it's related for sure. An economy of hope values what nourishes being human. Not just what sustains being human, like Doritos can sustain you, <laughs> but what nourishes you, you know, like a fresh picked apple can nourish you and, or love nourishes you or community, creativity, compassion, feeling accepted, beauty, all these things are very nourishing to the human condition. And this is different than any kind of economy we've had. We've had all sorts of different ways of thinking about the economy, like the gig economy and the experience economy and the essential economy. Like that's the other, right now we're in an essential economy, which includes a, a food supply chain that's really unhealthy. That's unhealthy for, we know, animals that are being, you know, kept in pens and being um, abused and, and injected with all sorts of antibiotics because they're so sick. And then it's really not that surprising that the humans are getting sick in these environments too, because they're just not nourishing environments for humans. And an economy of hope would create these environments in which humans can feel nourished and flourish. I'm talking about gardens, definitely permaculture farms. Those are very loving environments. Definitely art, of course, and creativity. These are very loving environments for the human experience. Activity, experiences together, music, rituals. These are very nourishing for the human soul. Our health, not just, you know, fixing the sick, but maintaining our health, make it, putting that front and center into the economy. And I want to say that the reason why I'm talking about an economy of hope is I don't think hope is a future thing, which is a very strange thing to say, because I think usually we think that when we talk about hope, we're investing in the future. And I think hope is investing in the present. It is investing in the fact that what is happening now is as it should be. And I love this quote. His name's Vaclav Havel. And he says, hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Something makes sense right now. Anything that nourishes the human spirit is what makes sense right now. And I think that one of the opportunities, long-term opportunities from this pandemic is nourishing an economy of hope. 
recognizing that the value that we have is the value in our money right now and our ability to make money and to flow it through the society and place it in the places that we know nourish the human experience. And that runs the gamut from charity to creativity to compassion to sustainable food. This is investing in now, in humans. I think it's quite simple. I don't think it has to go back to a sustainable business model. I don't think it has to go back to this triple bottom line. I don't think we have to quantify it in any other way than to ask ourselves, does this nourish the human spirit? The really, truly human spirit, the one that's based on love, the one that's based on being present and compassion and and hope and acceptance, beauty. Oh my goodness. It just makes me so happy to think about where that could take us if we all sort of shifted our mindset and moved in that direction. So this is what I'm doing now. I'm thinking about the economy of hope and how I can invest in it. What do you think? spending this time with me and for spreading the word about creative and curious. You can find me here every Thursday with new thoughts and insights on creativity, curiosity, and life. Tell me what you think. Please email me your comments and questions at marika at marikarenke.com. And if you feel inclined, leave a review. They really do mean the world to me and they'll help this podcast reach people just like you. And the best thing that you can do Keep creating. Thanks again.